turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That is where we left off last week. I have a couple of quick announcements for you that I do want to share with the internet. Suddenly, yesterday, it occurred to me that the Embracing the Truth conference in Gladeville is only a week away. I just always kind of thought, well, that's coming. It's, it's out there somewhere, and then suddenly I realize it's here. So it begins next Tuesday night, and then it's Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening, Thursday morning and evening, Friday morning and evening. I will be teaching there all three mornings. And I'm going to say this today. I'm going to say it Wednesday. I'm going to say it next Sunday. We will not be having Wednesday night service here a week from Wednesday, the week of the conference. We will not be having Wednesday service here. If you feel like going to church that night, and I hope you do, then come out to Gladeville, which is 20 minutes from here. You can get there. It's straight up the 840. Gladeville is a close-by community. And the Hamilton Chapel Church is not that far away. 
because the Embracing the Truth conference is next week, another thing I didn't realize was right upon us is that David Morris will be coming to town next Saturday. He's purposefully coming a couple days early for the conference so that he can preach here at GCA next Sunday. So our friend David Morris will be here to preach for us next Sunday, which means I have to get busy and clean my house (laughs) because he'll be staying in my house for the next couple of days when he arrives here. So remember to remind me to say this over and over again, because no matter how many times I say it, I know a week from Wednesday, somebody is going to show up at the door and be surprised that the building is dark and wonder what happened. I'm going to put a notice on the door, try to catch anybody that doesn't know it. But a week from Wednesday, not this Wednesday, a week from Wednesday, March 8th, 8th, the conference will be going on in Gladeville. Now, as for the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, some of this I mentioned last week, but I'm going to bring it up again so that it's fresh in your memory. Paul is having to address the Corinthians again because a series of things have happened while he was gone. Some Judaizers, some false apostles, some opponents of Paul have come into Corinth and have basically argued against both the Pauline teaching and the Pauline apostleship. And so he is defending his apostleship yet again. And his plan was that he was going to be going from Ephesus into Macedonia, and on the way he was going to pass through Corinth. And then he was going to go on to Macedonia, And then he was going to travel from Macedonia back to Corinth and spend some time with them, some significant time then. But apparently, that plan fell apart. We know that he wrote this letter from Macedonia. We know that he did leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia. But he apparently did not go through Corinth, which caused his critics to say, see, you can't count on Paul. Paul is wishy-washy. Now, we gather this, like a little bit of detective work, we gather this from what Paul's about to say. Because he's about to say, I meant to be there. In my integrity, I meant to be there. And I am not wishy-washy. The phrase he's going to use is, I am not yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. When I say something, I mean something. But, unfortunately, he was not able to be there. So, again, he has to argue for his integrity, for his apostleship, and for his love of the church at Corinth. And he is going to argue that time and time again throughout this book. Now, because of this controversy right here, and because we're going to see Paul bring up a particular situation in Corinth that doesn't exactly match anything that we read in the first Corinthians letter, even though that appears to be the second letter that Paul wrote to Corinth, theologians have speculated that there may be a letter in between what we call 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and that was the letter in which he said that he was coming to see them and that he was on his way to Macedonia, I'm going to stop through there, but the letter that also addressed some of the things that we're going to read here. Now, there are also theologians and commentators who say that because the end of this book takes a rather jarring turn, there's no transition to the last couple of chapters. So some people have said, well, perhaps that's the letter just added to this letter that got copied and handed down to the church. No one really knows. It's lost to antiquity. So just keep in mind that the order of letters to Corinth, there was a letter we don't have. Then there was a letter which we call 1 Corinthians. And then there appears to have been a short epistle giving them his plans and telling them what to do about somebody who would cause them a problem. 
And then there's the larger letter of 2 Corinthians. The only two we have are the second and fourth, called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The first and the third letter seem to be lost to antiquity, if in fact the third letter exists at all. So I'm just telling you that so that you can understand as we read through this and you go, wait a minute, I don't remember that from 1 Corinthians. I don't remember Paul addressing that particular thing. Well, that's why people have speculated that there was some other communication in between. Now, there are also people who have said, well, maybe it wasn't an actual epistle. Maybe it wasn't a letter. Perhaps he just sent either Timothy or somebody else to come into Corinth and just let them know his whereabouts and what was happening and what his plans were. We don't know. What we do know is that sovereign God has decided that these are the two letters that are most helpful and instructive to the church, and that's why these two letters have remained. Otherwise, we have to say, God meant for there to be another letter or two, but darn, we lost them. And and I don't believe that at all. So we're going to start in chapter 1. Oh, I was going to start at verse 9. Let's start at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. I can't help it. I have to camp out at verse 11 for a little while because there's things here that we have to address. Because the first thing Paul says is that they can help him on his journey by praying. Now, within the church... Not everybody can give generously. Not everybody can teach. Not everybody can play piano or guitar or cello for that matter. Not everybody in the church can do everything, but everybody in the church can pray. And here Paul says that the prayers of the saints are helpful to him because his dependence in everything he does, every place that he goes, everything that he encounters, every death sentence put on him by groups of people who want to just shut him up, his dependence through all of that is on God. And so the prayers to God on his behalf, he says, are helpful. Now, again this week, I got an email timed very, very well because I mentioned that the Gladeville Conference is coming up. And at the conference, I'm going to be teaching for three mornings on the subject of sovereignty and prayer, the next day on sovereignty and suffering, the next day on sovereignty and evangelism. Now, Sovereignty in prayer is something that we've addressed here at GCA several times through the years, and I've taught on it as I've traveled a bit, and so it should be familiar to us, but I got an email from somebody who said, well, why would you even bother to pray if God is sovereign? Which is a very, very common question. After all, if God's going to do what God's going to do, if God is already made up his mind what the future looks like, if he's already exhibiting his almighty power to bring about the end that he has predetermined, then why pray to a sovereign God? And I replied back, why would you pray to a God who is any less than sovereign? 
Because if he is not truly, genuinely sovereign, there is no point in asking him to do things. Because if he were not sovereign, if he actually would not encroach on human will, the church that we were in out in Los Angeles, the phrase that the pastor used all the time out there was he would say, God is a gentleman. And so he would not encroach on your free will, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if God will not encroach on the free will of anybody, if he is indeed a gentleman, that makes him powerless because he's unable to do anything he actually wants to do because the will of the human always supersedes his ability to actually do it. We want him to encroach on human will. That's why we pray for things like, save my unsaved loved ones. Now, in order for him to save an unsaved person, he must encroach on their will. He has to, or else they're just going to continue in their errant ways. There is no purpose, no point to praying to a unsovereign God. And Paul points that out continually, that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, that God is almighty and God knows what he's doing. Paul says that over and over again, and yet says to the saints here that their prayers to that almighty sovereign God are helpful. Now, isn't that interesting? Yes, George. Well, I think it's not just God's sovereignty that causes an apparent conflict. It's, it's predestination. Because, you know, you've got that last book of life. So what good does it do to pray for your loved ones to be saved? Well, that's exactly why I will be addressing the topic this week. But since you bring that up... It all ties into It all does ultimately tie into predestination and election because God uses means. God knows what it is he's going to do, but here, I'll put it this way. God knew he was going to get you. He knew before the foundation of the world, your name was in the Lamb's book of life. He knew he was going to get you. So did he do to you what he did to Paul? Were you going down the road one day and he knocked you down and he said, George, George, why do you persecute me? Well, no, he didn't do that. What was the means he used to get to you? His word, the preaching of his word, the joining together with the saints and your further education in the word. And in that process, he inhabits you and puts his spirit in you so that you can understand his word. And that's the means by which he saves you. So God uses means in order to accomplish the things he's determined to do. And therefore, the prayers to the sovereign God are part of the means and the help, in Paul's case, that gets us through this Christian life. People ask me constantly to pray for them. Because I'm an internet pastor guy... I get a lot of email from folks or messages on Facebook that say, please pray for me. But I do. I immediately pray for them because I figure whatever God is doing in their life, I'm going to cooperate and agree with God and I am going to pray because this person asked me to and I don't understand fully what the benefits are. I don't understand fully what the outcome's going to be, but I know this. They ask for prayer, I'm going to pray, and God's going to do what God's going to do. And Paul here said that the prayers of the saints are helpful. And even if they couldn't give to him, even if they couldn't travel with him, even if they couldn't be by his side every minute, read again, take seriously What he says here, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons. Now notice what Paul assumes the prayer is going to be. The prayer is going to be full of thanks, which is why he said, bring your petitions to the Lord with thanksgiving, because that thanksgiving is a vital part of the prayer. I'm not going to preach the whole thing I've got prepared for Wednesday, but let me just put it this way. 
Jesus, when he was asked to teach his disciples to pray, he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's the model prayer for the apostles to learn and to to teach. And in it is the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so we're asking God to give us food every day. But before Jesus even gives the prayer, in the same chapter, he tells his apostles, God knows what things you have need of. He even compares it. Behold, the lilies of the field. Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. If God will array grass this way, won't he much more take care of you? He talks about birds in the air, two sparrows sold for a farthing. And then he says, not a one of them can fall without your father. Now, if God cares about birds, won't he care about you? So Jesus is very clear to say, God knows what you need. It's God's pleasure to give you what you need. Now, go ask him for what you need. Now, go say to him, forgive me my sin. Now, go say to him, give me my daily bread. But he already knows what you need. And it's his pleasure to give it to you. But you have to go ask. So I think in the big picture, what this is designed to show us is to recognize that God is our source for everything. And Paul here again recognizes that God is the source of his strength and the saints praying to God for the strength of Paul and thanking God for even bringing Paul into their midst without whom apparently they would have never heard the gospel to begin with being Grecian Gentiles and Jews mixed together, who was going to bring them the story of the Messiah? It was Paul who had fear of death and many beatings and imprisonments, often hungry, a day and a night in the deep, going through physical torment. He still brought the gospel to them. They should say thank you. And so who should they thank? Notice that Paul does not say, you should thank me. Because I went through all of this for your benefit. Instead, he says, you should thank God because God's my strength. And through him, I brought you the gospel. You see the relationship? I hope that this is encouraging you to pray all the more. Because if Paul can write that they can join in helping through their prayers... And that there is thanks given by many persons on behalf of the favor bestowed upon us by the prayers of many. I hope you recognize that what James said is true. That the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, how that comports with God's absolute predestinary sovereignty, I don't know. But I know it keeps saying it. Paul, who more than anybody else in the New Testament gave us the theology of God's absolute sovereignty, also says time and time again, go pray to that God. Because you want to pray to a sovereign God. You want to pray to a powerful God. You want to pray to the God who's in charge. What were you going to say? This is actually a genuine question. Do you think maybe when he said that prayers help, that it was actually helping them? I think so, too. I think that part of what prayer does is that it helps us understand that we're reliant on God to provide everything we have, our health, our food, a place to live. You know, I've raised my children praying at the end of every day, and most of our prayers include, thank you, just thank you. We, we ate today, and we're dressed today, and we're fine today. Thank you, because there are a lot of people who aren't. So yes, I think it helps, but within context here, Paul is saying it helps him on the way. Uh, I didn't know if it helped. It's okay, okay that it helps him along the way. And by the way, you said this is a genuine question. I'm so glad it wasn't a fake question. <laughs> but, well, it wasn't a look at me. <laughs> Did you have your hand up, Mark, or were you waving? Well, actually, yeah, yeah, I was thinking, it reminded me of what C.S. Lewis said similarly. Somebody said, sort of asked the same question, 
you know, if God's sovereign, why do you pray to him? How do you think you can change your mind, change his mind? He says, I don't pray to God to change him. I pray to God to change me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So and I, I do think that praying to him and recognizing him as the source of everything causes our minds and hearts to be conformed to the realization of who it is that's providing for us. Yes, sir? Is God negotiable? This makes me think of Abraham negotiating with God about Sodom and the number of people. He worked, you know, he negotiated with them. Yeah, I have to conclude, and that's a really good question, and it comes up frequently. I think that God knew exactly what he planned to do. He knew that Lot and his family were in Sodom, and he knew he was going to send an angel to take them out. And I don't think that it was God who changed his mind. I think it was Abraham who changed his mind. Because Abraham first asked the question, yeah, you won't do it for 50, right? Well, God says, no, I won't do it for 50. The number God has in mind is Lot's family. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? And since I've asked, let me ask again. 40 gets him down to, what, 10? Yeah. And when he gets down to 10, well, that, that's Lot's family. And that's the end of the conversation. I think God knew from the beginning that he was going to take Lot and his family out. And the reason I know that's what God planned to do is because that's what he did. Mm-hmm. If he had planned to do something else, he'd have done something else. But because he planned to get Lot and his family out, he did. So I don't think God ever changed his mind. I think that Abraham was finding out how merciful God really was. And it's always a process of conforming the believer to God's will. Absolutely. It's a process of conforming the believer to God's will. I was going to bring up Jonah, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to go there right now. And, uh, and then Wolf did it for me. But think about the story of Jonah for just a moment, because I find it fascinating. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and say, I'm going to destroy it. And Jonah so, knew what he was going to do. He knew his, God's character, and that's why he was all ticked off. And didn't, God's going to destroy Nineveh, yeah. And so he goes to Nineveh ultimately via fish through that whole circumstance. <laughs> He ends up finally in Nineveh saying that God is going to destroy Nineveh. And then wouldn't you just know it, they repent. Sackcloth and ashes. And what does God do? Not destroy them. And so the end of the book of Jonah is Jonah being upset with God. And so God gives him an object lesson and destroys a gourd. And then says, what, you're upset I would destroy a plant, but you're not upset that I didn't destroy women and children? The question becomes, did God change his mind when they repented? Or was it always God's purpose to cause Nineveh to repent so that he wouldn't have to destroy them? Well, later in Nineveh and Assyria's future, God uses them to attack the northern tribes of Israel Take them out of their land into captivity. God knows he's going to do this. God knows he's going to use Assyria to accomplish this. Therefore, I don't think it was his intention ever to destroy Nineveh. It was his intention to cause Nineveh to repent. And the way to get them to repent was to send them a prophet who said, God will destroy you. And so they repented. Now, Jonah personally was put out that God didn't do what he said he was going to do. Because, like George brought up, God uses means. His goal, his purpose, was to cause Nineveh to repent because he was still going to use Assyria to punish his people Israel. He still had a plan. So he sent them a prophet to say, God's going to destroy you to cause them to... Pardon me? He sent him a prophet with a real testimony. Oh, sent him a, a prophet with a real testimony, absolutely. So that they would repent because the end result is exactly what I think God intended from the beginning. Otherwise, we have to say that God intended, genuinely intended to destroy them and then saw their repentance, changed his mind because God is changeable, <coughs> he's mutable. 
You can negotiate with him. And he changed his mind and did not destroy them. I think the end result of how he used them proves that it was never his intention to destroy them. It was his intention to preserve them. And he sent them a prophet with a message that would cause that because he uses means. Don't say anything else. What? Didn't Jonah say that? God, I knew you would forgive them and be merciful. And that's why. And that's why it all came out like this. Yeah. So, so yes, I think your first statement was the right one, which is the process of praying to God causes us to change and comport our minds to bring them into line with the God we serve. I don't like that. <laughs> Who likes that process? Nobody likes that process. Neither did Jonah. And neither did Jonah. Yeah. Well, be careful because there may be a fish waiting. So. There was one more. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, you know, Is it a real question, though? It is a genuine. A genuine question. <laughs> okay. Um, in Exodus, when when they have the whole golden calf thing, you know, and God tells Moses to stand out of his way, he says, stay on my way so I can destroy these people and I will make you a nation. And then Moses pleaded with him. And I guess in some translations it says God changed his yeah. mind, in others it says God relented. Yeah. So I'm wondering yeah. what you thought about God. And sometimes in the King James, I think it says repented. Right. Yeah. And no, I think what happened there was that God was teaching Moses about intercession because Moses himself reached the point where he said, I can't handle these people anymore. I want nothing to do with these people. Wipe them out. Go ahead. But when God played the, the okay, I'll do that card, Moses had to stand between God and the people and learn how to intercede. And I think that's an important lesson. God was teaching not only Moses, but Israel and us that there can be an intercessor between his wrath and our well-being. So there was a purpose and a lesson to what he did, and I think it was always God's purpose to do that. Now, yes, God, a couple times in the Old Testament, we, we see in dealing with David, you know, that he stopped the plague and he relented and stuff. But I don't think that's a sign that God changes his mind. It's just simply that God has completed what he intended to do. Does that make sense? Okay. You also, joining in helping us through your prayers, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. For our proud confidence is this. Now Paul's going to explain why he is confident in the things that he is saying to them, the things he has taught them, that he is an apostle to them. He's going to explain it yet again because these people have been undermined. His testimony keeps getting undermined every time he's away. For our proud confidence is this. It's the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity... Not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. Okay, so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the folks who are coming and telling you anything different than what I have said, they're confounding you with man-made wisdom. They're confounding you through philosophy. It's the same thing that's happening today. You can look anywhere on the internet and the people who are saying anti-Calvinist things or anti-Christian things or anti-biblical things or anti-God things, they're usually arguing from a position of fleshly wisdom. Well, that just doesn't make sense to me. Well, yes, it doesn't make sense to you because you are thinking from your flesh. And Paul says... Consistently, his theology is always, if you understand the things of God, it's not because someone talked you into it. It's because God was gracious to you in opening up your understanding of these things. Get this right. If I can talk you into anything, somebody else can talk you out of it. If I use fleshly wisdom to convince you of something, then somebody with more fleshly wisdom can talk you out of it and change your mind. 
But if God, by his grace, gets a hold of you and convinces you, then no amount of fleshly wisdom can change your mind because you're convinced not by human beings, not by fleshly logic, not by philosophy. You're convinced by the spirit of God himself. And so Paul says, that's our confidence. That's where our boasting comes from, that while we were with you, we consistently Preach the grace of God and didn't try to wrap you up in fleshly wisdom. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you have read and understand. And I hope that you will understand it until the end. Okay, there's perseverance right there. So remember in the first letter, in the first Corinthian letter, that Paul wrote and said, I save to know nothing among you, save Christ and him crucified. That was the essence of the message. Know who Christ is. Know what Christ accomplished. He's been crucified, resurrected again. That's the essence of the gospel message. Now Paul is saying, I'm writing again, but I'm not giving you anything new that's going to change that. That is still the essence. What you've already read, what you already understand, that's the essence of it. I have used that kind of thinking many times in my own life and with others when folks say, you know, I just don't know anymore. I just, I'm confused. I just don't know. Whether it's eschatology, oh, I just I don't know anymore, or, or whether it's even, you know, my faith is slipping, I'm having a hard time here, I don't know anymore. I always reply to them, go back to what you know. Did he or didn't he get out of the grave? Did he get up again after dying or didn't he? What are the historic evidences of that? What are the proofs of that? Did it happen? Did it not? And they have to admit that, yes, all the evidence ends up at, yeah, he came out of the grave. Start there. Start there. Rebuild again. If you hit a wall on some eschatological point, then then go around the wall and ignore that for a moment. But always hold on to the essence, which is Christ crucified, (laughs) which is Christ died and raised again, He paid the penalty for your sin. That's the essence of the gospel. If you want to get into all the other complicated stuff, like George and Wolf said earlier, where they said, well, no, it's about predestination. That's where people get hung up. It's about election. It's a, yeah, those are tough things. Foreordination. Oh, all these big theological words. I can't wrap my head around everything the Bible says about God. Okay, fair enough. What do you know? Do you know that Christ died and raised again? If you know that, start there. For we write nothing else to you than what you have read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us. He's still having to refine and correct some of their misgivings and misunderstandings. Just as you did partially understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are our reason to be proud in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, this is what he's getting at. Start with what you know. Christ is coming back. We all agree with that, right? Right. If you don't agree Christ is coming back, then we're going to have a whole other conversation. Okay, so we know that Christ is coming back. Will that be a good day for you or a bad day for you? Be a good day. Okay, good. I'm glad you think that. Good. If you think it would be a bad day, again, we have to have another conversation about this. Okay, Christ is coming back, and what are you going to be grateful for, and what are you going to be proud of when he comes back? You're going to be happy that you lived your life as a Christian. You're going to be happy that you devoted yourself to his word. 
You're going to be happy that you've been praying to him. You're going to be happy that you've been a a part of a community of believers who all helped each other through this difficult life until he came back. And that's what Paul is saying. You're going to be proud of me because I came and brought you the gospel. I'm going to be proud of you because you believe the gospel. And we're all going to be happy in the day of Christ. Which is a whole lot better than being unhappy. Because we, we read frequently that when he comes back, there are going to be people who run for the rocks, the caves, the dens of the earth, and cry to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, those people are not looking forward to that. But for us, we can't wait. Now would be good. I'd be perfectly happy for him to walk through the door right now and say, let's go home. That's what we're all waiting for. That's what we're hoping for. And so the things that we will have confidence in and be proud of is going to be our Christian testimony, our unity, our love for one another, the fact that we did act on this planet the way he told us to act. And that's what Paul is getting at. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours In the day of the Lord Jesus. Now he's going to have to talk about the schedule change. Because they have said, you know, you can't count on Paul anymore. You know, he said he'd be here. He didn't come here. And apparently the false teachers were quick to jump on that and say, see, didn't do what he said. He said he'd be here. He's not here. Now you can't believe anything else he said. Starting at verse 15. And in this very confidence, in this confidence that I'm proud of you, you're proud of me, we're in the grace of God, we're going to be happy on the day of the Lord Jesus, in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you that you might receive twice a blessing. Let's talk about that word blessing for a moment. Last week, I put a word up on the board, eulogetos, remember that? And I told you it means to speak good, to speak well of. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a different word. This is a word that you all know. It's the word charis in the Greek. It's the word for grace. The translation of blessing here, that you may twice receive a blessing, is kind of an odd translation, but I understand it. I get it. We don't really use the word grace like you've received the graces. And so the word blessing was chosen. I just think it's a bad translation. What he's saying is that you might twice receive the grace of me being among you, teaching you the grace of God. That would be a a grace to you. But we don't use that language, so in the English it's translated as blessing. This Bible has benefit. Benefit's a good one. That's a good one. In this confidence I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive a blessing, that is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. That's the original plan. Therefore, verse 17, therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose. Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? <coughs> I've been fighting this sore throat all week. And it's <laughs> I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose. Do I purpose it according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Okay, he has just identified the way the fleshly world thinks and the way the fleshly world makes promises. This is going to be easy. I'm going to pick on George because he's sitting back there, but he's a perfect example of this. Not an example of this, but, he's going to, but he'll answer the question correctly. So, George, you're a lawyer, yeah? Does everybody who says something to you actually do what they say they're going to do? No. No! See how quick that came? (laughs) Yeah, because that's what Paul identifies as fleshly, wishy-washy way of thinking. 
Have you ever had somebody say, oh, yeah, I'll be there, and then not be there? You had somebody say, oh, yeah, I'll pay you back, and then not pay you back? We've all had people make us promises. I swear on my mother's grave, I'll do it. Then they don't do it. And so Paul says, that's not how I am. I'm not wishy-washy. I'm not yes, yes, and no, no. I'm very purposeful. And now watch what he's going to do. He's going to say, I mean what I say because God means what he says. And by the grace of God, I'm being conformed to this kind of godliness. Therefore, because he's consistent, you can trust that I'm consistent. Now, notice that Paul does not argue that he himself, in his flesh, he's trustworthy. His argument's going to be, God is trustworthy. And because God is trustworthy, you can believe what I'm saying. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose. Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, Then he tells us who us is by me and Silvanus and Timothy. That gospel that was preached among you by us was not yes and no, but it's yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God in him, they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. This is really deep theology. Paul is yanking it out in order to say, I was not lying to you. I intended to come to you. My integrity is in God. The fact that my plans changed means that God, who is sovereign, changed my plans. I ended up where God intended me to be And I don't want you to think that I'm wishy-washy or yes, yes, no, no. I want you to know that when I say it, I mean it because God means it when he says it. Well, that opens up a whole plethora of theological ideas that we need to examine for a minute. I'll try to pare it down to just a couple. He has just said that God always means it when he says it. This is important for us to know because if God has said... I've saved you. I've known you since before the foundation of the world. I have redeemed you through the death of my son. You have a heavenly estate waiting for you. You can be confident that he means it because with God, it's not yes and no. It's yes. Wouldn't it be terrible if it was yes and no with God? It'd be awful if God could say, I've saved you. Nah, just kidding. No, not really. I've redeemed you in my son. You're in my son. He's in you. And then take him away? That would be awful. So Paul is arguing God is consistent. And then he uses this marvelous phrase. Now, I've memorized it more in the King James, so I think of it in the King James. But in him, all the promises of God are yea and amen. In him, yes. So think about this theologically for a moment. There are people who will say, what about all these promises to Israel? God has made all of these promises to Israel, restoration of Israel, the promise of the land, the expansion of the land, the kingdom to come, the everlasting kingdom, the descendant of David, the Davidic covenant. God has made all these promises to Israel that haven't come true yet. So does that mean they're not going to? Well, Paul tells us something very, very important. He says, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes. There are folks out there who will try to argue that God has two separate means of saving Israel and saving Christians, (laughs) Gentiles, the church, and that God's intention is to save the church through Christ and somehow save Israel through returning them to the law and sacrifices and all that. That there's two different plans of future salvation. No, there's one. Christ is the one. Through him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. 
After all, when he creates the Davidic kingdom that he has promised David ever since the Davidic covenant, who's going to be that king? Christ. In Christ, the promise of God is yes and amen. Israel's going to be returned to their land and established again as a national entity. How? Zechariah tells us Christ is going to return. His feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is going to cleft in two. And then all Israel is going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep over him like a mother weeps over her child. Okay, so what's the restoration of Israel? Christ! The new covenant. He's going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. How is that going to happen? Because the Redeemer of Israel has come. That's the name that Jesus has given time and time again. The angel speaking to Mary said, you call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? He's a Jew. He's born to the Jews. Those are his people. So in Christ, all the promises of God, the promises he's made to you, that as a Gentile, he's going to adopt you into the family. He's going to forgive your sin. And he's going to bring you everlastingly into his presence where there's joy eternal. That promise is coming true through Christ. Christ died to redeem you. Christ is coming back to get you. Christ has made these promises to you that, he, that where I am, you will also be. Okay, it's all being fulfilled in Christ. But then you look at the promises made to Israel. They're not done away with. They're not established in the church they are promises that have been made to a particular people that will be established and fulfilled through Christ because in Christ all the promises of God are yes and importantly amen it shall be so it's going to be verily verily so in Christ God is accomplishing everything he's planned to accomplish in this world why? So that at the end of it all, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's Lord. Things above the earth, things below the earth, things on the earth. Everybody's going to bow to the glory of God the Father, but everybody is going to confess Christ. So he's going to ultimately have preeminence. So all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen. Paul just says that in passing in order to establish that he really meant he was going to be with them. He was going to come to Corinth, and that didn't happen, and his plans changed, but he's not being wishy-washy. He's not being yes and no, because God is not yes and no. Christ is not yes and no, and Christ is the surety that whatever God says is going to come true. Got the argument? Yes, sir. Isn't this a great argument? <laughs> I got one yes, sir, in the back. That's what I got. I got a bunch of nods, but the people on the internet can't hear your head rattle. So, no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God in him, they are yes, wherefore also by him is our Amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. So he's making the point that our relationship is designed by God. The one who set me up as the teacher, I don't mean me, I'm speaking for Paul here. The one who set me or Sabanus or Timothy up as the preachers who would bring the gospel to you, that's God. The one who opened your heart to understand the things that I'm saying to you, that's God. The one who brought us all together as a community, that's God. And so this is God working out his purposeful intention. This is not me by my flesh trying to make up the first university of Paul. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you is Christ. Remember Jesus saying 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <coughs> Paul's agreeing with that. Christ is actively building his church. And he has established us. He has identified us as me, Sylvanus, and Timothy. He has established us with you. And it's Christ who did that. And the one who anointed us, put us in this ministry, chose us, assigned us to come and do this, is God. Who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. This is so important. Let me write this down for just a moment. In English letters... Arabon is the word. It comes up a couple of times. In fact, since you said yes, Micah, you can look something up for me. Look up Ephesians 1.4 for a minute. And Tom, go forward in 2 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. This is two other places where Paul uses this word, pledge. And I want you to get it. Because if you get it, it's going to give you a great deal of confidence. Unlike the fleshly wisdom of this world... If you understand the Holy Spirit is the Arabon, you're never going to be shaken again. What does 2 Corinthians 5 5 say, Tom? He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Okay, so there it's translated as guarantee. Here it's translated as pledge. What have you got there, Micah? Ephesians 1 14. Was given as a pledge. Nobody can hear you. Stand up and read loud. <laughs> was given as a pledge of our inheritance. With you know what? Go back to verse 12 and read all the way to 14. Okay. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Very good. Now, this concept of Arabon, the times that Paul uses it, he always means the same thing by it, that, that the Holy Spirit given to us, implanted in us, is a pledge or a down payment. The modern translation of it would be down payment. Now, how many folks in here have ever bought a house? Okay, so when you buy your house, you put a contract on the house and you give them some earnest money. And the reason... They can't sell it out from you. So they can't sell it out from underneath you, right? It's yours. It's yours. And you've given them that down payment, whatever they require, it's a pledge. It's a way of saying, I'm going to get the rest of your money. I'm going to go to the bank, and I'm going to take out a loan, and I'm I'm going to buy your house. And don't sell it to anybody else because I have already given you a pledge. You got it? An arabon. That's the way the word was used in classical Greek. Now, Paul is arguing that God giving you the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a pledge that seals you, seals you into God, and that because you have the down payment, you already own all the rest of everything God has promised you. It's not active in your life yet, But you know it's there, and you know it's waiting, and you know it's coming because you have the down payment. The same way that you know someone's going to buy your house once you've got that down payment in your hand, once you've got the pledge of God, once you've got the Holy Spirit of God in you, then God has used that, according to Paul, as an arabon, a pledge, so that you know that everything else he's promised you... Everything else that's coming, heaven eternal, joy everlasting, and even the ability to get through this life and persevere all the way to the end. All of that is true for you because you already have the down payment. So that's what the Holy Spirit is. Not only does the Holy Spirit seal you into God. I was out in Los Angeles one day. 
and I was putting away some leftovers. And, and I was using some saran wrap, I think was the product. There's no product placement in this sermon, but, <laughs> but right on the box, the saran wrap said, has Kling Plus. That, that was the, the marketing thing at the time. Kling Plus. And so I put some leftovers in a bowl, and I took out the saran wrap, and I put it around the bowl, and it wouldn't cling to that bowl for anything. I mean, I wanted to staple it to the bowl. And I remember saying to my brother, we lived together at the time, and I said, wouldn't you think that something that had cling plus would at least cling a little? (laughs) Some. So what I ended up doing with it was putting it in one of those Ziploc bags. And when I poured the food into the Ziploc bag, the next thing I did was seal it. And so that's what I always think of whenever Paul uses the word, the Holy Spirit is the seal. It's like God has put you into a Ziploc bag that belongs to him, and then he closed it. He zipped it. He sealed it. You belong to him, and you're safe inside the comfort and the hold that God has got on you. So the Holy Spirit acts as the seal and the Arabon, the down payment that creates in us the confidence and the trust that all the rest of it is true. How do you know you're going to heaven? The answer is, well, I have evidence of the Holy Spirit. How do you know heaven even exists? Well, I've got the Holy Spirit. How could I have a Holy Spirit if there's no God? And God's in heaven, so it's axiomatic at that point. I've been changed from within. The Spirit of God in me has made significant enough change that I can say, I wouldn't do this after my flesh. It has to be God that has changed me. I have evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life, and that Holy Spirit is the down payment, is the promise that all the rest of what God has intended and promised to us is true. And in Christ, all those promises are yes, and in Christ, all those promises are are amen. So really, how confident are you? You should be very, very confident because you've got Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God all working on your behalf. So finally, verse 23, but I call God as witness. I'm not going to appeal to Savanus or Timothy or anyone else. God is my witness. I call God as witness to my soul. That means to my my inner being, not just fleshly, not just superfluous, but really down deep where I really mean it. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come to Corinth. Oh, that's interesting. Paul says, I didn't come to Corinth on my way to Macedonia. But you know why? To spare you. So apparently, Paul was in a state, or they were in a state, or the conflict between them was so great that he knew that if he came to them right then, there was going to be greater conflict. So he went on to Macedonia so that he could write this letter to them, and then, having expressed his love and concern for them, then he was willing to go see them. Not that we lord it over your faith. I don't have a great deal of time left to talk about this, but... He's saying we're in an argument, we're in a discussion, we're in a difference, there's conflict between us, and I didn't come to you so that I could spare you from that, but then he catches himself and realizes, not because I'm saying I'm the important one. He recognizes we're all in this thing together, and so he says not that we would lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. We're going to pick up right there and go on into chapter 2 next week. Paul did not want to lord it over people's faith. There's an awful lot of that going on in the Christian church these days. We've all seen people who truly, genuinely lord it over your faith. You want to know what that looks like? Okay, I'll do it for you. Mark, you don't have a tie on. Get out. There. I just lorded it over his faith. He didn't uh, live up to my standards. Oh, oops, I don't have a tie on. Um, (laughs) 
Women, you need to be wearing a dress or you shouldn't come to church. See, I'm lording it over your faith already. We've all seen it. You can't believe in Christ and smoke. Now, if you smoke, it's stupid. (laughs) But I'm not going to go so far as to say you're not Christian if you do that. I've used the example many, many times of a friend of mine who used to hustle pool. And when he became a Christian, he couldn't play pool anymore. Okay, fair enough. What he couldn't do was say, now nobody else can play pool. Lording it over your faith becomes saying, my conviction has to be all your convictions too. So that's what Paul was saying. I'm going to come to you. I spared you by not coming to you that first time when I said I was going to. I'm writing this letter to express how much I love you. And now I'm going to come to you because we're all in this together. And together we're going to work out this Christian faith. And I'm not going to lord it over you. You got it? So next week, Paul will continue. No, next week, David Morris will be here. In two weeks, we'll go into chapter 2, and Paul will continue to express his love and concern for these folks. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.